Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 12? Hebrews chapter 12. Once you're there, would you join me in prayer, please? Our Father, we come to you this morning, and Father, I uh, think my prayer is very similar to the one that, that we just sang. Take my life, Lord. I am yours. Father, would that be the prayer of every single person in this room? That now as we approach your word, and Father, as I believe you want to do something in our lives this morning, you want to draw us closer to you, you want to change us, you want to conform us more into the image of your Son. That, Father, that would be our prayer. Take my life, Lord, and do whatever you want with it. Father, this time is yours. Would your Holy Spirit have the opportunity to work in such a way that... Um, that we are able to leave this place today with a greater understanding of, of you and of the love that you have for us. Father, we love you, but only because you first loved us. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. We have, um, we've been working through the book of Hebrews all year, and uh, we've actually gotten to Sermon 31 in this series. And here in chapter 12, there's only one chapter to go after chapter 12, it's chapter 13, but... This is a passage of scripture that we get to today that is somewhat of a climax here in the book of Hebrews. In fact, many scholars kind of compare um, this, this letter of, of uh, Hebrews to a sermon rather than, than a letter. And um, in most sermons, there's kind of a climax that is reached before uh, the pastor or, or preacher begins landing the plane. Now, some of you might be sitting under a sermon sometime, probably under a sermon of mine, and you're thinking, will this guy ever land the plane? Um, but now we've come to a part here in Hebrews in which the author is, is beginning his initial descent. You know how when you're riding an airplane and um, it comes across the, the loudspeaker, the pilot saying, hey, we're going to land in about 30 minutes or so. We're going to go ahead and begin our descent and uh, go ahead and stow away things that might would fall um, as, you're, as we are descending. Uh, well, that's kind of where we're at here in the book of Hebrews. And, and the author is going to really, he's going to hit home with some, some heavy heavy points here in, in this passage of, of chapter 12. This sermon, if you will, began back in Hebrews chapter 1, and it systematically walked through the fact that Jesus is better. Um, evidently, these Hebrew believers were holding on to things that, um, in addition to Jesus, to save them. They believed that more than just Jesus was necessary for their salvation, so they added to Jesus for their salvation. Because they didn't want to go to hell when they died, and because they were religious to the core, they wanted to be safe and make sure that there's no chance that they got it wrong. So whatever they saw out there that might could add to their salvation and make sure that they were safe, they kind of added it to, to what they had with Jesus and, and hoped that hope for the best, uh, hope for the best results. But in their attempt to ensure their salvation, they're undermining the role that Jesus should have been playing in that salvation. The author of this letter is, is obviously disturbed. These people are missing something somewhere. There's something that's not right. At the very least, they're committing heresy in their teaching and their understanding. And at the very worst, there are probably some who, in their attempt to take every religious component possible and add it to the equation, that they are completely missing Jesus, the one who originated their salvation to begin with, or should have, anyway. So the author writes this letter 
or the sermon, if you will, with the purpose of helping them understand that Jesus is better. He is better than the rituals that they have added to their lives. He's better than the angels that some of them were prone to worship. He's better than all the priests of the Old Testament that they held in such high regard. In essence, the author is saying that Jesus is better than your cultural traditions. He is better than your religious habits. And he is better than your preferential leanings. He started this book off, and I love the way he started this. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It's going to be on the screen for you. But here's how he began. He said, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Folks, right there, after just four verses, the author of Hebrews could have just dropped his pen and said, hey, that's, that, there you go, that's the point that I needed to make. Right there it is. That's a synopsis of what you needed to hear. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he continues after this point, spending the whole rest of the book breaking down this destructive mindset that the people had. The reality was that the way they currently believed was sending some people to hell. And for others who were truly believers, they were certainly not glorifying God. And so he embarked on this journey to help them understand a right thinking and a right belief. That Jesus is better. Now, folks, these, um, these believers needed a foundation on which to build off of. Because we've all got a foundation. Do you know that? Every single one of us have a foundation on which we build off of. So the author spends the whole rest of the book explaining to them the foundation that they must build their lives upon. They've got to build their lives upon the fact that Jesus is better. Nothing else will, will, will work. Now, I want to spend a moment here just kind of talking about this foundation because... Um, the reality is that the problem that these believers had back there in the, in the first century A.D., the problem that they had is oftentimes the same problem that we have in our individual lives, in our churches today, where we try to add things or we build on, on our own foundation rather than the foundation of Jesus. Now, a foundation, like we, we, we know this, it's, a, it's something that you build off of, okay? You build on top of a foundation. Um, there's really only two options when it comes to the foundation that you can have in your spiritual life. Okay, the first foundation is one that proclaims with your life that Jesus is better. This is one that you can build off of. This is one that is solid. It's not going anywhere. This foundation has stood the test of time. Now, it's not a foundation that is based off of anything that mankind um, can do or has done for salvation. Um, it's based off of the fact that Jesus has already completed all the work that's necessary for salvation. This, or this foundation never, ever moves. Okay? The reality is that it's always there, available. The problem, though, is that we are not always standing firmly on that foundation, and that's where the second foundation comes in. We can just call this foundation the foundation of me. Okay? You can just label it just simply, the foundation of me. This foundation is one that's rocky at best. It's a shifting foundation that moves kind of with the ebb and flow of life. This foundation is based on what I perceive that I can do to affect my life and eternal destiny. It's all about what I can achieve or what I can earn. It's not one that stands firmly on what's already been done for me by Jesus. It stands firmly on, or I stand firmly in this, 
on what I think that I can do for myself. That is the foundation of me. Now, every single one of us in this world is standing on either the foundation of Jesus or we are standing on the foundation of me. There's no other options. It's one of those two. Now, there's some who think, okay, well, there's actually another foundation of another religion or another belief system. But the reality is that that's not true. Jesus, when he was here on earth, what did he say about, about himself? He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6 is where he says that, right? Jesus is the only foundation or only way to get to God. So we are either standing on the foundation of Jesus or we're standing on the foundation of me. And that's what the author of Hebrews has been working to communicate all throughout this book. Jesus is the only way to God. He's better than anything else that you could attempt to put in his place. But here's where our passage of scripture is going for today, okay? I want you to hold on to this, this phrase. If you have a foundational belief that Jesus is better, it will drastically affect the way that you live your life. If you have a foundational belief that Jesus is better, then it's going to impact every aspect of your life. All right, so let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to find this, okay? Hebrews chapter 12. Um, we're going to start reading in verse 14. And I want to invite you, if you're able to do so, for the stand, to stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to read Hebrews 12, 14 through 29. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and whose voice and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. May God bless the reading of his word. Y'all go ahead and have a seat. If you have a foundational belief that Jesus is better, then it will drastically affect the way that you live your life. Okay, but what does that drastic change look like? And that's what we're going to see as we work through Hebrews chapter 12, the last part of Hebrews chapter 12 here, okay? First of all, we see that this drastic change will look like or will um, force us to strive for peace with everyone. 
You see there on your screen that it says, if Jesus is better, then you will strive for peace with everyone. That's what we see there at the beginning of verse 14. Now, the author's speaking on a really practical basis, okay? But he's not doing so with the expectation that we pursue peace simply for the sake of avoiding conflict with other people. The basis for this command comes because of the peace that believers have found with God. For a believer, we were at strife with God because of the sin that we were enslaved to, okay? That's what we were. We were, um, we were enemies of God, the Bible tells us. We were under the wrath of God. But when we became believers, uh, when we became followers of Jesus, when we became Christians, we are at instant and eternal peace with God. Scripture speaks uh, extensively about this peace that we have with God. I think about John 14, 27, where we read, Peace I leave with you. This is Jesus speaking, by the way. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Not let, or let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Um, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Folks, the reality is that every single one of us who are believers are at peace with God through Jesus. We are at peace with God through Jesus. Therefore, since Jesus is better and because of his finished work and because a believer is no longer at war with God, we can strive for peace with other people. In fact, it's right for us to strive for peace with other people. Now, that doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to sin. Or that, we, that we, we, we don't stand up for what is right in an effort to, to keep peace. Folks, this simply means that we understand that we have been given so great a blessing from God in obtaining his peace that we want to have the same peace with other people. You get that? When you see the peace that you've got with God now, you want to have the same peace with other people. When we have a foundational belief that Jesus is better, it's going to result in us striving for peace with others. But then next, what we see is that we strive for holiness. We strive for holiness. I'm going to read all of verse 14 here. Strive for peace with everyone. Then the thought continues there. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Without which no one will see the Lord. Now, that verse is clear that without holiness, a person is not going to see the Lord. Now, you remember that we've got three different types of, of holiness that we talk about, right? We've got uh, positional holiness, and that's when we become believers. We are positionally holy before God. Then you've got progressive holiness. Um, that's the process of becoming more like Christ after our salvation. By the way, we're never going to be completely without sin while we're here on this earth, okay? But the idea is that as believers, we grow in Christ's likeness until the day we die, and then we are permanently holy, where no more do we have to worry about the curse of sin because we are forever in the presence of God. Um, now, the holiness that the author is talking about here is really all of the above, all three of those. Positionally, we strive to surrender to the holiness that God gives us at salvation. Uh, progressively, we, we strive to continue surrendering to being set apart from the old nature as believers. Permanently, we, we look forward to the day in which we will forever live without the curse of sin. Okay, the author's talking about holiness in general, all three of these together. Without holiness, a person will not have the opportunity to spend eternity with God. It's exactly what we find here in, in this passage. Now, in no way is the author arguing that we are to work for our salvation, because that, that really goes against everything that the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us. 
what this does do is remind the believer that holiness is essential for a relationship with God. Because without holiness, there is no relationship with God. If you have a foundational belief that Jesus is better, it's going to translate into striving for holiness. Okay? Not only do we strive for peace with other people, not only do we strive for holiness, but then we also do everything possible to see people obtain the grace of God. Now verse 15 there, it starts out, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That carries with it the idea of falling short of the grace of God. See to it that nobody falls short of the grace of God. Grace is receiving something that you don't deserve. We don't deserve the relationship through, uh, with God through, through Jesus that's provided for us. But God gives it to us as a free gift anyway. When a person has been captivated by the beauty of their relationship with God, listen, they cannot help but be changed. When a person has been captivated by the beauty of their relationship with God, they cannot help but be changed, and it translates into how they interact with other people. Uh, Greg Laurie is a pastor out in California, and I remember one time that he said that there's really two great stories for any believer to ever tell. Number one, there is a story of how they came to faith in Christ, that they rehash this, that they think about it, that they tell other people, this is how I came to faith in Christ. But then secondly, they don't only tell how they came to faith in Christ, but they tell how others can come to faith in Christ. They tell the story of the, the, the life, the death, and the resurrection um, of Jesus. Those are the two stories that they, they focus on because they want so much for others to, to take in the grace of God the way that they have taken it in. Folks, it's the same way for us. If Jesus has impacted us to such an extent that we often proclaim with our mouth, how can we not help but to share that with other people, to see that they obtain the grace of God just like we have. The grace that God offers me is no different from the grace that he offers anybody else. From the vilest of, of, of sinners, the one that, that you look at and you're like, there's no way that God can save that person. To the person that's a basically good person. They've never done anything horrible in their whole life. They're basically good. You look at them and you're like, hey, there's nothing wrong with that person. They are all in need of the grace of God the same way that I am and the same way that you are. So folks, one of the marks of someone who believes that Jesus is better and lives as if Jesus is better is that they do everything that they can to see that others obtain the grace of God. But then next, we see here that um, when Jesus is better, then we will let no root of bitterness spring up. I want you to think about a plant here with me for a minute. Um, it is the time of year where plants are going to start dying, but you think about the springtime and uh, the flowers that kind of come out on the, on the, on the bushes or the, the, the plants that you've got there. And um, we know, because we had a basic understanding of science from when we were in elementary school, that underneath the ground is a root system. And what takes place with that root system and the healthiness of it or lack thereof is going to affect what takes place on the outside of the ground. Okay, so keep that idea, that mental picture of a plant uh, as we work through this, okay? I'm going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 29 here for a moment. And you, it's going to be on the screen, but you can turn in your Bible if you would like. But I'm going to read Deut Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 18 and 19. This is God speaking, and here's what he says. Beware, lest there be any among you, a man or woman or clan or tribe, whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. That's talking about the person whose foundation is built on me, okay? Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous or bitter fruit. 
One who, when he hears the words of the sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Folks, we're a believer who says that they're a believer, but then they live a life of bitterness and anger. They are doing nothing but hurting themselves, and they're hurting the church, and they're taking what's good and turning it bad. See, God describes it as a poisonous and bitter fruit. Bad fruit is always going to produce bad fruit if it's kept anywhere near the good fruit. Verse 15 here in Hebrews chapter 12 says that when a root of bitterness springs up, it causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. This is the person which, in which nothing is ever good enough. There seems to be very little joy in this person. They're, 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 they aren't standing on the foundation of Jesus. They're standing on the foundation of, of themselves. Now, there's a big difference between the unbeliever who has never truly tasted the goodness of Jesus and they're living in the sin that's natural to them and the believer who claims that they've tasted the goodness, yet they live with a heart and an attitude of stubbornness. If you have a foundational belief that Jesus is better, then why would bitterness and anger and stubbornness rule in your mind and heart? You've supposedly been changed. God has given you a completely new root and plant system. Why are you allowing yourself to go back to the way that you were before you were a believer? That goes against everything that shows or proclaims that Jesus is better. And this next one is similar to it, okay? If Jesus is better, then you will not be sexually, or, uh, sexually immoral or unholy. Now, in, in, in this passage of Scripture in Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews um, in describing the sexually immoral and un unholy person, he, he, he brings Esau into the picture. Now, if you look and you study the Old Testament, you're going to find no reference whatsoever of Esau being an immoral person. Okay, in fact, in the whole Bible, this is the only time that anything like this is referenced. We do see in Genesis chapter 26 and in Genesis chapter 28, the fact that Esau marries multiple women who are not godly women, but there's no specific reference to Esau being an immoral man. However, the Bible is very, very clear that it is not necessarily in the actions of a man in which you find the problems. It's in the heart. And John MacArthur, in talking about Esau, he has this to say. He says, perhaps the saddest and most godless person in Scripture outside of Judas Iscariot is Esau. On the surface, talking about both Judas and Esau, on the surface, their acts against God do not seem as wicked as those of many brutal and heartless pagans. But the Bible strongly condemns them. They had great light. They had every possible opportunity, as much as any person in their times, of knowing and following God. They knew his word. They heard his promises. They had seen his miracles and had fellowship with his people. Yet with determined willfulness, they turned their backs on God and the things of God. Folks, what I believe the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate here is that when you've got a foundational belief that Jesus is better, your heart is not going to be characterized by immorality or unholiness. But then there's something else that we see with Esau here. And look at the very end of verse 16 and verse 17. We see that Esau sold his birthright for a single meal, verse 17, for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, and he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And in this, we see that if Jesus is better, then you will not be shallowly selfish. You will not be shallowly selfish. Esau was a person whose desire for physical food superseded his desire for the rich blessings of God. He was shallowly selfish. 
His desire was, hey, give me what I want in this moment. I don't care what it costs me. And when a little bit later on he grieved that he had done this, there's no way to go back and once again gain what he had lost, what he had given away. Now, there's a whole lot of nice things in this world, a whole lot of things that are not necessarily bad, especially in our culture today. There's all kinds of things that we can have at our fingertips. There's, there's wealth, there's possessions, there's sexual gratification, there's a sense of belonging by one method or another, there's, there's media and entertainment wherever we turn. We can have all of those things right away, just like Esau. He couldn't even wait a little while to fix his own food, though. How often does that kind of characterize us? No patience whatsoever. Thinking about what I want in this moment, not what would be best in the long haul. We can sell ourselves to sin and instant gratification in a heartbeat. We can be shallowly selfish. But folks, the person who has a foundational belief that Jesus is better is the person who has eternity in mind. They are thinking about eternity. C.S. Lewis is famously quoted as saying one time, that if I find in myself desires to which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Isn't that right? You know, so often we pick up on little things and we think, this is going to bring gratification, this is going to satis bring satisfaction now, and that's what I want, this moment. But ultimately, those things don't follow through and bring us ultimate joy and, and happiness. I love that quote. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Christian, you were made for another world. Don't get so caught up in what this world can offer you because at the end of the day, that offering is very, very small. Next, if Jesus is better, then you will not refuse God. You will not refuse God. Now, I want to read verses 18 through 27, then we're going to pull them apart so we can understand what's being talked about here. And I'm going to kind of pause periodically to, to explain it. But I want to begin reading verse um, 18 here. Um, and as I begin, let me mention that the author is talking about Moses' experience at Mount Sinai, okay? So right here at the beginning, you think about Moses' experience at Mount Sinai. Verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and, the, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, it was a terrifying experience. Never should we assume that this experience was one of never-ending, pure joy for Moses. Okay, yes, he met with God on that mountain, and anytime God chooses to step into the narrative of our lives, it is a wonderful thing. But the presence and the majesty and the awesomeness of our God is a thing to be feared, especially for the person who may not be right with God. Now, by all indications, Moses was right with God when he met with him on Mount Sinai. But it still would have been an absolutely terrifying experience for him. In fact, we read in verse, in verse 21 there that Moses is quoted as saying, he says, I tremble with fear. Folks, when you tremble with fear, that is because there is an outside force that has so captivated your senses that you can't control your senses anymore. You can't control your emotions anymore. There's nothing that you can do to control yourself. That was Moses in meeting with God on Mount Sinai. But the author of Hebrews is about to make a distinction here between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. 
Okay, in these first few verses, he told the Hebrew believers, he says, you have not come to Mount Sinai. Okay, catch that. You have not come to Mount Sinai. Now, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Folks, if you have a foundational belief that Jesus is better, you've got no reason to fear Mount Sinai. But you have all the reason in the world to look forward to Mount Zion. Do you get that? Mount Sinai is a place of fear, right? And, and righteously so, because there's mankind that's coming before God and they aren't completely right. But then you come to Mount Zion and you are right before God. That's what this author is telling his believers. Hey, you have come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is a place of refuge. It's a place of strength. It's going to last for all of eternity. It's in Mount Zion that our God dwells, and it's in Mount Zion that we can spend eternity with him. If we hold on to the fact that Jesus is better than anything and everything. Now, we live in a world that at its best can offer us nothing more than a shaky foundation. If we rely on the things of this world, it will give us a shaky foundation. But Jesus can offer us a foundation that will never crumble. That's what we see starting here in verse 25. Look at verse 25 through 27. See that you do not refuse him, God, who is speaking. See that you do not refuse God who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much, uh, or much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. There's a time in which Jesus is coming back. He's going to return. He's going to put an end to the shaky foundation of this world. And when he does, all that's going to remain is the firm foundation that is established by God. That's it. If we have a foundational belief that Jesus is better, then we're not going to refuse God. Folks, we're not going to refuse God because of fear, because we've got no reason to fear. If you are a believer this morning, keep your eyes on Mount Zion. Keep your eyes on Mount Zion, on the city of the living God. That's what we read here, the heavenly Jerusalem, to God, the judge of all, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Keep your eyes on Mount Zion, on God, and on Jesus. Do not refuse the glory and majesty of God. Do not refuse him when he speaks because he is the great God who has brought us to Mount Zion. Do not refuse the love of this God that brings you life when you deserve death. Do not refuse God. It's the whole point of what we just talked about. Do not refuse God. But there's one more point for us to see here in this passage, and that is that we worship God with reverence and awe. We worship God with reverence and awe. If Jesus is better, then you will do this. Verse 28, let's read 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Folks, if we have a foundational belief that Jesus is better, then let us, as Christ followers and as children of the living God, worship him with reverence and awe, falling on our face saying, God, I know that I am nothing and that you are everything. 
God, I know that my salvation is found in you and in you alone. God, I worship you and I give you the reverence and the awe that you are worthy of. Now this morning as we prepare to close, I want to ask you one simple question. Here it is. What foundation are you standing on? What foundation are you standing on? Is it the foundation of Jesus? Or is it the foundation that you've built yourself? The foundation of me? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment? All week I've, I've had a simple thought that God wants to do something in some, something special in someone's life here this morning. And right now, you might be sitting there in your seat, and you're knowing full and well that God's tugging on your heart. You may have proclaimed with your mouth that you have a foundational belief that Jesus is better, but you haven't lived as if he is better. Or maybe you've never proclaimed that Jesus is better, and right now, everything inside of you is screaming out that you want to know more about what that looks like. In a moment, we're going to sing a song, and when we do... I want to encourage you to come out of your seat and come right up here and spend some time on your knees in prayer with God. I have no idea what God may be doing in your heart and your mind right now. But I want to encourage you to spend some time on your face before Him, dealing with Him the way He is calling you to. If you want me or another pastor to pray with you, then we'll be happy to do so. Just come get one of us. As we prepare to sing, I want to read one more passage of Scripture for us, and it's one that we read earlier from Hebrews chapter 1. Here it is. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is truly better. Would you respond to this moment in whatever way the Holy Spirit may be leading you?